I'm so glad that you're here today. And if you're joining us for the first time, we have been going through the book of Colossians. And I have to confess to you, next week we'll wrap up our study of the book of Colossians. And I have to confess to you that I'm going to be sad when we're done with this book. It has been full of truths that are um, expected for me. Like this, this passage, Colossians 4, 2 through 6, it's one of my, my favorite passages in all of God's word, partially because it's one of those like, let's do it. We can do this. We can can be serious about the gospel in our lives. But there's other passages as I've gone through this study that, that the, the Lord, through his inspired word, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, praise the Lord that we have access to the author, that he's just said, man, I really want you to work on this. And, and I want to begin this morning personally telling a story that I've shared some illustrations from, from the Titanic, but there's one of those elements of the Titanic that really stands out to me. You guys, you guys uh, this, this picture is a boat um, that is called the SS California. And, and the Californian was just five miles away from the Titanic at the time that it sank. In fact, there were testimony that, that happened that, that was recorded afterwards that they saw up to eight rockets that were shot from the Titanic. They said that there was some peculiar listing at the Titanic. And, and what we know from historical accounts is that the Titanic would sink at around 2.30 in the morning, five miles away. What we would find out later is that they would arrive on the scene where the Titanic had sank at 8.30 in the morning. Okay, so 2.30 8.30. And ultimately what would have happened would be that as they arrived, what they had to do was that they had to pick out of the water dead bodies. They had to collect the boats, the lifeboats that had been, been emptied out. And there's these pictures that show when they actually made it to shore that show them unloading uh, basically the, the, the lifeboats and they had dead bodies. Now that boat was built to hold passengers. It happened to be that day having no passengers on board, just crew. And later on, it would be described in the inquiry that they had a shameful inaction. Now we, we know the story of the Titanic. The next slide, you're familiar with this picture, that there were 1,512 lives on the Titanic on the night that it sank that ultimately there would be 705 souls that survived the sinking of the Titanic. And part of the reason why they survived, this is awesome, actually, is part of the reason that they survived was that there was another boat that was in the water, actually owned by a different line. That first one, the Californian, was owned by the same company that the Titanic was owned by. And there was, a, there was another boat called the RMS Carpathia. It was captained by Captain Henry Arthur Henley Rostrum. And, and the story of this is so interesting to me because they estimate that they were between 80 to 100 miles away at the time that they heard the radio distress call of the Titanic. And so what the captain decided to do at that moment, they said that later that he was quoted as saying that he said, turn the ship around, we're going full steam ahead towards the boat. Now, when we say full steam ahead, it's partially because of what happened on that night. This boat had never gone as fast as it did that night. They say that they turned all of the steam on the ship from the passengers' cabins to help keep people warm, from the passengers' cabins that allowed there to be hot water in your, your can you imagine if you paid all that money to have your cabin be nice and warm? But they, they ended up going full steam ahead through the same iceberg-infested waters that we know were around that ultimately led to the sinking of the Titanic. And what ended up happening is that we're told that they ended up being from 60 to estimated to up to 100 miles away. They 
arrived on the scene three and a half hours after the Titanic had sunk, that they pulled out of the water, out of those lifeboats, 705 souls. And and there's a component of this that, that you listen to it and you say, what that captain chose to do was he was like, there's nothing getting in our way. We're all in. We believe that this is a matter of life and death, right? And there's a component of the, the title of this morning's message is Pursuit. And I just love this illustration. There's these stories. I read a book this last week from a survivor from the Titanic. And he, he tells the testimony that he could, have see, he could see the Californian from the boat five miles away. And they thought, oh, they'll be here soon to help, help to. And it never came. It never came. It's a terrible story, that part of it. But the Californian was, was, was full of, had a captain that ultimately would later, Stanley Lord would be later said of him in the inquiry that he functioned in a way that was shameful in action. It's a terrible phrase, isn't it? Shameful action. He didn't do anything about it. It was from a distance. We saw the rockets. We chose not to do anything. The Apostle Paul models for us so beautifully an individual who says, you know what, I really take this, this, this truth about God and his word and the reality of life and death, and I just take it really seriously. In fact, I take it so seriously. Last week, we talked about the prayerful element of this, that he says, even though I'm chained for the gospel, I'm going to pray that when I get out of here, that I'll be totally radiating the truth of God's word and the gospel in every context that I'm in. In fact, the way that he words it in Colossians chapter 4, 2 through 6 is so powerful and so inspiring for me because it tells me what it looks like to be a person who really takes God at his word, what it looks like for us to be people who move from shameful inaction to be people that say, we're in. We want to do everything we can. Now, I confess, if I were on that boat, the one that cut all the steam off and I was a paying customer, probably would have been a little miffed that night, right? I was asleep. Things were good. It was a cold night. But, but at the end of the day, those people who are a part of that boat got to be a part of the relief effort that ultimately spared so many lives. And as I prayed at the beginning of this message about what a privilege it is to serve the Lord, I think that's the spirit of the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 4, 2 through 6. We're going to focus in on the last two verses, but if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Then I want you to hear again this this command, this charge, this challenge, this statement that the Apostle Paul gives us that I believe ought to be all of our prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. That I, I, I love that Paul's in prison for this. And he's like, give me a chance, Lord, to do this again. Pray, pray that I have a chance to continue to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. Verse four, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Now, these last two verses are what we're going to focus in on this morning. Verse five, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
These verses are so powerful to me, and they, they can be summarized in this statement, and I think it's so important. To those that have generously been given the gospel, it is our highest privilege to actively pursue those who have yet to receive it. I don't know if you imagine God as a coach. Maybe it's because I had meaningful coaches in my life, but but in football, when, when I was growing up, one of the things that you do on defense is you're constantly doing pursuit drills. And a pursuit drill is, is fascinating because you have to do some geometry. You have to kind of figure out, all right, if I'm on the other side of the field, at what, what point am I going to meet up with the guy who's running the ball so that we can have a date, right? A collision. Are you guys excited about football season? A few of you are. That, that we're going to have a collision because of the fact that I decided, even though I'm probably not going to run as fast as him, if I do the pursuit in the right way, we're going to be at the same place at the same time. There's a deliberateness to that. And the Apostle Paul's going to describe to us what it means for us to be people who pursue intentionally the lost. It, there's a statement that's here. All the points this morning are going to be right from the text. The, the first point this morning is to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. It's the first part of verse five. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. I think what he's saying to us is that regardless of schoolwork, um, just family stuff, whatever that looks like, that we ought to be people who live wisely amidst a world that desperately needs grace. One of my best friends is a pastor in the Carolinas, and he he told this story. I remember he told this in a preaching class when we were at Cedarville. He ended up going to the same seminary I went to as well. And he, he did not have the privilege of growing up in a Christian home like I did. He had not been exposed to the gospel. And when he was a high school senior on the football team, he ended up getting invited to this, this outreach thing. He ended up praying to accept Christ and it just totally rocked his world. Scott, Scott's world was altered from being a guy who was totally conforming to the pattern of this world to now being on fire for Christ and ultimately becoming an amazing pastor, a really gifted man. But Scott told this story and it, it has been one of those things that has, has kind of seared my conscience thinking about the way he said this. Is he said that when he went to church on Sunday. He'd been invited to go back to that same place on Sunday. And he walks into church. He goes into the youth group at this local church. And he starts looking around and he starts to notice people that are on the football team with him. And, and he is confused because this, this message of the gospel is so profound for him. It's so meaningful that Scott confesses that the next time that they had football together, Scott grabbed one of the guys, threw him up against the locker, and he said, why did you never tell me about this? Can you imagine that? And, and what, I, he, he said, don't recommend that, right? <laughs> but, but, but what his point is, is he's saying that this is, if this is the most important thing about you, why in the world would you not share it? And there's a component of this that the Apostle Paul is saying, walk in wisdom. Choose how you live. Make deliberate choice. Remember, walking always in Scripture is deliberate choice. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. That phrase is important. It's an important term. He's saying we're not exactly the same as people who are not Christ followers. There's, there, there's a difference between us, and that's okay, that we don't conform to the pattern of this world. In fact, this walk in wisdom towards outsiders implies that we go. It's important, church, for us to remember that, that coming to church is not God's primary method for reaching the lost. When we understand the concept of the Great Commission, he says, go 
and make disciples of all nations. For some of us, I don't know when this crept into the history of the church, but the, the idea that we got to just get them here. And, and once we get them here, then they're going to hear the truth. Now, some of you came to Christ that way. But, but the challenge here is that the Apostle Paul is saying, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. That, that this gospel that, that we have, the message of the clarity of the gospel, that's a mystery to them, is something that's so profound, so powerful, but it's going to require us to go to where they're at. And he says, in, a, in some sense, that we're weird when he says outsiders, that we're not the same as them. There ought to be a significant difference in the way we talk, the way we act, the way we spend our money, the decisions that we make. There ought to be a difference between us. And that's part of this walk in wisdom towards outsiders. There ought to be a distinction. John 17 describes uh, this statement. It's so powerful. He says, you are not of this world. Church, do you understand what he means by this? We're not made of the same stuff. We don't have the same dreams. We don't spend our, spend our, our days in the same way. He later says in 1 Peter 2.11, he says that we're strangers and aliens. No offense, right? Strangers and aliens. We don't conform. We transform. Do you understand that concept? That he's asking us to be something different. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And it's okay to understand them as outsiders. It's okay to understand them as potential worshipers of the King of Kings, but it's not the same. In fact, he says it in such a way that he says, we gotta be deliberate about this. We gotta seize the day. We gotta make the most, the best use of our time, the most careful use of the most valuable commodity that God's blessed us with, and that is how we spend our time. I've been a part of three funerals and the point where it's the eulogy time, you know, where we remember the person and we recall what their life was about and what they invested in and what was precious to them. Three different funerals where I've had someone stand up and say they were really good at video games. Now, I want you to think about that. So is anybody planning on putting their top score on Angry Birds on their casket someday or on their gravestone? Like, it kind of makes you, like, weirded out a little bit, doesn't it? Like, I think it should. And I'm not saying that I'm not, I, you know, I don't enjoy. What I want you to catch, though, is that, that nowadays there's a part of this that when it comes to the decisions that we make, that for some of us, that that's the thing that we're investing our time in. There's a, a wonderful book. I love C.S. Lewis. I really appreciate a lot of the things that he wrote. There's a book that he wrote called The Screwtape Letters. It's a fictional story of a, di a dialogue between two demons. And the dialogue was intended to describe what it would look like for a demon to tempt someone away from understanding the truth of the gospel. And so you follow these letters, and there's, I think there's 11 of them, and each of the letters talks about how to kind of keep him from hearing the gospel. And then he becomes a believer. And then the dialogue that they have is how can we keep him from being effective for the king? How can we keep him, keep him from being effective as a messenger of Christ? And, and ultimately, they, they have this dialogue, and, it, and it's so profound to me. He says, we want them to believe the myth of free time. I think that's interesting. We want them to believe the myth of free time. And then they go on to say, we know that there's no such thing as free time, for a believer, it ought to be time that's devoted to bringing glory and honor to the king. 
And so I read this and I think like it's so possible for me to be so saturated with entertainment and things that are distracting me and to just invest my time in things that just really don't matter that ultimately I can choose to ignore what the Apostle Paul is saying he's praying for. He's crying out to the Lord and he's saying, help us make the best use of our time. How do you do with how you spend your time? How do you invest your life? What are you choosing to do with the most precious commodity that we have? Then he turns to the way that we use our tongue. And this is so significant. He says, let your speech always be seasoned with salt. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. And there's four things that I want to point out here that I think help us when it comes to how we approach how we speak. The first one is that I believe that God is asking us to be people who speak up. We must choose our words carefully in, in the context that we're in. The, the gospel necessitates the use of words. We, we talk about St. Francis Assisi. You've heard this quote before that speak the gospel at all times and if necessary, have you guys read this? If, if necessary, use words. I loved that quote growing up. Bumper sticker material, right? But, but then as I started to study God's word that, that when, he, when he says things like in Acts when he says salvation is found in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must, we must be saved that he says to us, that words are necessary. And I understand the point of the quote is, is to say, you want to live your faith. But there's this part when we keep talking about embracing the awkward, right? Am I the only person who likes that concept? I, maybe it's because I embrace the awkward a lot, you know? But embrace the awkward is this, this idea that we're just saying, I have to, if I really want to share the gospel with somebody, that it requires me to use words. So there's a component of this that I believe when he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that it requires speaking up, that it requires us to communicate truth. The second that I want to point out is that it requires us to be consistent. Let your speech sometimes be gracious. No, that's not what it says. It says, let your speech always be gracious. This is in public and not so public settings. People are smart enough to listen to what we want them to hear, and they're also smart enough to listen to what we do not want them to hear. I don't know if any of you watched the Christmas, um, the Christmas Story, the one that was set in Cleveland. You guys know which movie I'm talking about. It's a little early for Christmas talk right now. But uh, we, we always quote the little pictures quote in there. He talks about the kids in the back of the car. Mom and dad are talking, and there's little pictures that are hearing what you say. But in the movie, there's this classic scene where the son says a cuss word and, and the mom says, where in the world did you hear that? And the, and the son, we get his, his thoughts and he says, oh, I heard it like every day from dad, right? And in fact, this is, this is the quote. Rafi thinks, my father worked in profanity the way that other artists might work in oils or clay. It was his true medium and he was a master. Uh, Ali and I, if we're, if we're honest, there have been times where we have heard our kids speak. And, and the first thought that goes through our mind is like, where did you ever learn to speak in that way? Or where did you learn to use that tone? Or where, and they, like, even as we're thinking it, we're like, oh no. Because they're listening, right? And, 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 and if you haven't pieced this together in your own life, the way you speak about other people in their absence communicates so much to the people who are in your presence, right? Like they're listening to you. They, they want to hear. So when he says, speak graciously always, 
We want to be people who put people at ease. Now, what's the deal with grace, right? Grace is defined as undeserved favor, right? That it wasn't deserved. It, it's, it's, there's a component of this that we may be saying all of the good that we know about someone, that we describe it. And it may not mean that we include all of the bad, but we're allowing ourselves to be people who speak truth. We generously share what we see. Do you know people like that in your life? They just affirm you and they affirm you specifically that they they know you, they're gracious enough to express it. I sure do. We've, we've kind of grown up in that world of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never. It's a lie, right? It's one of the biggest lies that you've been told in your life because you can remember words that people have spoken to you from 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, right? Some of us, we can recall those words. Words matter, and it's important for us to remember this. Somebody said this to me in the last year, and it has so stuck with me, is they said, Sean, you know, words are a little bit like toothpaste, that, that once you squeeze it out, it's really hard to get it back in the tube, right? And so when we, we make this connection in our minds, that over, out of the overflow of our hearts, so our mouth speaks, we're smart enough to know that that is dead true, Right? That, that what we speak is, is what overflows from our hearts. And when we use words, we need to be people that speak well, that speak graciously, that understand the power of words, that we use words to lift up, not flattery, not just statements that make people to understand that we appreciate them, but that are true, that are designed to affirm them. Let your speech always be filled with grace. And then he says this statement, seasoned with salt. I, I think that there's a component of this that, that is, it, it, it is pretty straightforward when you look at it. Now, I, I've decided to go to McDonald's, ask them to get us all a French fry, and then I've asked them to not put any salt on it, okay? And so I'm going to have each taste it. That would be pretty gross, right? If you, like, you're like, I'm in still. All right, no. Like, we know that, that there's a reason why. I have one friend who says that McDonald's French fries is what we're going to eat in heaven. I think that's pretty funny. I don't know. I'm not saying that right now. <laughs> but, but you've had something that was saltless or tasteless, right? You've experienced this before, and you know the difference between when it's well-seasoned, right? We, we know this. And when the Apostle Paul says this, remember, salt, salt is something that was designed, really, as a gift from God to help things to taste better. And there's a component of this that you look at it and you say, when he says seasoned with salt, what he's saying is that, that it's attractive, that it's winsome. I love that word, winsome. I hope to be a winsome person. I want people to say, I want more of that. I want to understand more of what they have. I want to live that way. And so when he says seasoned with salt, there's a component of this that he's just saying that we ought to be people who are communicating this in an attractive, appealing way. It's not just about what we say. It's about how we say it. And I believe that our words can draw others to want more of Christ in their lives, right? Isn't that what salt does? It just leads you to want more. It leads you to want something more than what you have. So, so there's a component of this that, that I love this. If, if any of you have ever been in these caves, you may not know this, but underneath Lake Erie, we're told that there are millions and millions of tons of salt. And I love this picture. It's a really, really cool image. This is a, 
a salt mining tool from the Cargill plant that's there that's under Lake Erie. It is estimated that they will take out annually 4 million tons of salt under Lake Erie. It's 2,000 feet under Lake Erie. And there's just, just mounds and mounds of salt. It's just, just walls of it. And they, they scrape it off. So have, have any of you ever been inside these mines? I want to go. So if somebody can get me an invitation, that'd be cool. But part of the reason why I want to go is that, is that I, I understand, like when the Apostle Paul said this, salt in those days was limited, it was difficult to come by. They actually used it as a form of payments where we get the word salary from. And so you get paid in salt. And it was precious, it was valuable. Obviously, it could preserve and it could do a number of things. So, so this image, I've just seen these pictures. And part of why I want to go is that, is that I just believe that I'm somebody who's been given so much that it's not just a pinch, but it's tons of the, the stuff. I just want to be someone who gives it generously and lavishly. Isn't that a cool image, right? That, that we've been so blessed that we, we are people who have this endless abundance of the ability to speak the truth of the gospel well. And at the end of the day, the result can be something profound. And I believe it's a part of the blessing of being a Christ follower let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. And then he goes on to say at the end of verse six, so that, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In other words, I think he's saying to us, do the hard work. Ask the hard questions so that you can answer the hard questions. When he tells us that we ought to be people who are prepared to give an answer for the hope that we hold dear, there's a component of this that, that we want to pre-answer their questions because we've already asked them to ourselves. When I was in, when I was in high school, I studied French. Um, I can't speak French very well. It took four years of it. Can anybody relate to that? A few of you, yeah. But, but my, my French teacher, I had the same one two of those four years. And one of the things that she asked me to do early on, she was an outspoken atheist. And she had asked me to write a paper, first of all, about Voltaire and philosophy of Voltaire. And then she asked me to write about examples of mythology in the, in the Old Testament and New Testament. And then finally, she just bluntly asked me to write a paper about 10 reasons why the Bible's not true, right? So it's public school. And this was a real, pro and how that fits together with French, you can help me to figure that out, right? But that was the assignment that I was given. And I don't know if, if you were asked to, to write that paper today, like how you'd respond. But I, I did what I think is probably pretty common. I called my pastor. And I, and I said, Mike, I, my teacher has asked me to write this paper for about the 10 reasons why the Bible is not true. Of course, I know the Bible is true, but um, what, what should I say? And, and what Mike did that day was a tremendous gift for me. He was a seminary guy. He knew, knew the answers. He said, he said, Sean, you got this. Like, why do you believe the Bible is true? And, and, and it, I can remember, I can remember the, the legal pad that I had, and I wrote that question on the top. Why do I believe the Bible's true? I grew, grew up in the church. I always took for granted that the Bible was true. I just assumed it was just the way it is. But I sat down, and I, I had to write 10 reasons. I, don't, I think it's because she challenged me to have 10 reasons. Why. I write 10 reasons why I believe God's word is true. The, the historical narrative, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what it means for God to preserve and protect his word, the authority of the truth of God's word. And afterwards, what I had done was I had answered a question that really wasn't my question at the beginning, but it was one that I needed to have a good answer for. And I'm so thankful that my pastor didn't just say, all right, buddy, take down this notes. Here's what we get. Point one, point two, point three. 
So by the time I turned in my paper that was the exact opposite of what that teacher wanted, I had asked myself a question that ultimately gave me the privilege, and I've been able to answer others' questions in my life based upon my ability to ask myself the hard question. For some of you, there's parts of your faith that you still need to be a self-feeder of God's word in. You need to be somebody who says, why is it that that happened? Where, where does this fit? How do we reconcile this? What does this look like? And I want to encourage you as a pastor, as a friend, to be somebody who's a self-feeder of God's word. Why do you believe that this is true? Is this the hope that you hold dear? And if it is, then you need to be someone who's prepared to give an answer to each person. Or in Paul's words at the end of verse 6, know how you ought to answer each person. It's hard work. It's totally worth it. And I, I like the, the way he describes this, that there's this assumption. It's not if they're going to ask you, but it's just when. It's going to come. We're going to have chances to do this. We're going to have open doors for the gospel. The question is, are we going to be willing to go through the open doors? Are we going to be willing to do it? And I've challenged you to do this in three ways. The first way that I've challenged you to do that, and I believe that this is consistent with the, the truth of God's word, is to be aware that we're people who, when we see the needs that are around us, that we're sensitive enough to say, I'm going to do something about it. That I, I realized, like, remember Jesus with the woman at the well, that he, he noticed her, he saw her story, he heard what she was saying and what she wasn't saying. And there's a component of this of being aware. The second is to be bold. That I keep talking about embracing the awkward. But there's a component of this of just being willing to say, you know, is there a follow-up question? Can you help me to understand your story more? Help me to know who you are. And sometimes the boldness might mean that it's to a perfect stranger, but if you, um, if you, if you follow the way people come to Christ, that often it's, it's, a, it's a brother or sister, it's a, it's a parent, it's a coworker, it's somebody who you're, you know their language that they're using, and you know when they said they're not okay today, that they're not okay today, and they need you to be bold enough to say, let me tell you about the hope that's a part of my life. And then the third thing is this clarity thing. It's this understanding the gospel, that you understand it well enough that you're willing to be able to say, this is who the Lord Jesus is. Here's how he died for my sins. Here's what he did for me. The clarity of the gospel makes all the difference in the world. I love the image of the Titanic because it, it haunts me in terms of the two parts of me that I think I wake up every morning doing. And on the days that I, I pray a prayer and walk into a prayer like Colossians 4, 2 through 6, where I'm praying, Lord, give me, give me the, the courage to make the most of every opportunity. Allow me to be someone who deliberately pursues to follow what Pastor Jim said earlier, the Lord Jesus did when he says that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. I want to be a person who captains my life in such a way that says, I'm all in. Cut off the steam. Let's go. It's worth it. Who knows what's going to be there when we get there, but we're going to go and we're going to put, put, uh, risk it. We're going to risk everything for the sake of those who have yet to hear the gospel. But I also know the temptation in my heart is to be someone who, as they described the one captain of the one boat that said that he had shameful inaction, that I understand that there's an ability for me to even see open doors, to be aware of the rockets, to, to truly believe that every person I've ever met is an eternal person and to just choose to do nothing. 
As a church, I believe that the application for this morning that's essential for us is to hear the most prolific evangelist in the history of the world after the Lord Jesus Christ was a man who saw the value in praying these words. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open for us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Make the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for the blessing and abundance that you've given us in our life. Lord, we thank you that we are in the ship and Lord, I thank you and praise you for that, that reality of what it means for us to be given access to the truth of your word, to have the privilege of calling you our Abba Father, for you to be the most important thing about me. I love that. And Lord, I, I pray inside of me that you would do a work that allows me to see those who have yet to hear it the way you see them. I pray for Hope Church that you would allow for us to, to have that, that sense of winsome expectation that Paul is praying this for. That I don't think this is just guilt or shame or burden. He's actually just saying, I'm excited. What's the opportunity that you have for us? Lord, would we continue to be people who are finding ourselves not just seeing your open doors, Lord, that we're willing to walk through them with gratitude because we're grateful that somebody loved us enough to do the same for us. I pray that as a church that we would be people who live up to our namesake, that we would not just be receivers of hope, but we'd be givers of it. We love you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.